0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good evening. You can turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. This evening, through scripture and through song, we have traced the events that led up to the arrest and the trial of our Lord. Now, Typically on a Maundy Thursday, uh, we focus in on our preaching on the words of Jesus at the Last Supper, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. Tonight, though, I want us to step back and look at the whole progress of Jesus to the cross, particularly on this day and seeing how incredibly difficult it was for him to face the sufferings that awaited him and to see the thing through, to ask the question, how on earth did he do it? By what means, what thought, what motivation did he have in him that caused him to actually go to the cross and to suffer and to die? How did he endure? We know that Jesus did not accidentally bumble into the sufferings that he found there in Jerusalem he knew on the thursday perfectly well the pains that awaited him on the friday in fact he knew that from all eternity the first verse of the upper room discourse that we read in john 13 this evening says that jesus knew quote his hour had come and that he would soon be departing out of this world to the father this wasn't just a vague premonition of a, a passing away or of a parting from his friends. It was a, a precise and accurate knowledge of the agony of how that would come about. Jesus said many things during his ministry that indicated he knew very well the kind of death that he was to die. He said in John 13, as Moses was lifted, or lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And many other things like this that show that he knew perfectly well that he was to die by crucifixion. And the knowledge of this was not easy for him to bear. Not at all. It deeply disturbed him, especially so here at the end. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his betrayal, Jesus said this to his disciples, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And then he goes away by himself to pray and desiring very much to escape the sufferings, if he could, he asked his father, Lord, let this cup pass from me if it's possible. And he said this, it's recorded for us in Luke 22, with such agony and such fervency that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. It was with great difficulty that Jesus faced the sufferings of the cross. But even though he knew the sufferings that awaited him and though he desired very much, if possible, to escape them, nevertheless, and hallelujah, he went on to pray, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but yours be done. Now those are unbelievably heroic, incredible words. They're not just words, but he went on to show his perfect submission to his father by going all the way, seeing it through, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now I think it's helpful to us to ask the question, how did he do that? How did he make that turn in his prayer? How did he submit him, his will to his father, knowing what that would mean for him? If we answer that it's because Jesus is God, there would be truth in that, but it would be an insufficient truth, one that doesn't hold out much hope for you and me. We're called, after all, to follow in his train, to take up our cross daily and suffer in, his, or follow him, in following him and to be conformed to the likeness of his death, and we're not God, So if our answer to how Jesus underwent the suffering of the cross is that he's God and he can do that because he's God, well, what's in that for us? Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. And as such, the incarnate son of God undertook very difficult work. He suffered immensely in his calling as our redeemer. As the prophet Isaiah foretold that he would, he said he would be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces. Surely he himself bore our griefs and our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Jesus' life was no cakewalk, no walk in the park, It was incredibly painful for him to undergo these sufferings, to face them with a perfect knowledge of what lay ahead. It was hard. How was he able to see it through? Well, Hebrews chapter 12 verses one to three explain for us how he was able to endure the cross and it does so reminding us that we are called to suffer with him and like him, holding out hope for us and encouragement to us as we give ourselves in faith to that calling. Let's read it together. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through three. This is God's word and it is eternally true. who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the passage begins by invoking, calling to mind this, the example of all these Old Testament saints and martyrs that's talked about at length in the previous chapter. These were men and women of faith who it says in the last part of Hebrews 11, "...experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. That's how Hebrews 11 ends, through uh, calling as witnesses, calling to the front of our minds all of the the righteous example of these brave martyrs and saints. And, And it does this in order to exhort us to something. There's an imperative in the verses that follow in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, and that imperative is this, that we run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's what all of Hebrews 11 is driving at, that you and I would learn how to and would be inspired to run with endurance the race set before us. Well, let's consider that for a moment. The idea of a contest or a race is an often used scriptural metaphor for the Christian life. The word in Greek is agon, which means, to, to, it means struggle or contest. It's a word taken from the Greek Olympic Games. From the gladi- it's a gladiatorial word. It, it means to contend. The Apostle Paul uses this word often in his writings. He says to Timothy, in his first letter to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. That same word for fight is agon. And later, reflecting on his ministry, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course, and in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And Jesus, using the verb form of agon, describes the whole contest of heaven this way. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. It's the same word, or same, it's a cognate of that word. Ah, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now what do we learn from this? We learn that the Christian life is not a life of passivity or ease. It's a life of struggle requiring all the self-discipline, all the desire, all the drive, all the strain of the most serious athlete. And even more so when you consider how much more is at stake with us. This is what Paul writes, writing to the Corinthians, he reminds them of. He says, everyone who competes in the games, exercises self-control in all things, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And so he ups the ante for us. We should approach the Christian life with as much vigor and passion and determination and time and effort as the great athletes of old, even more so because of how much more is at stake for us. The Christian life is a life and death struggle. And so that's what the Holy Spirit is telling us when he says that we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice that this race, this contest of the Christian life has been set before us. We did not choose it for ourselves, nor could we choose it for ourselves, as we were on the road to hell, on the broad path that leads to destruction, totally blind and ignorant of any other possibility. And God, as an act of his grace, came down and opened our eyes and showed us, set before us a new way, a new path that leads to life. Just as David said for himself in Psalm 16, you will make known to me the path of life. God sets the race before us. He makes known to us this new path, this new course that leads to heaven. And he not only ordained the course, set it before us, but he also set the difficulty rating on the course for us. How what is the difficulty rating of our path to heaven? Is it easy? Is it moderate? Is it difficult? Is it hard? In Acts 14, we read that Paul and Barnabas strengthened the souls of the disciples in Lystra, encouraging them to continue in the faith with these words, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. They said this and needed to offer this encouragement and explanation because Paul had previously been stoned and left for dead there after a riot broke out. But his encouragement, his strength to them was, through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. The way to heaven is fraught with difficulty. There are many dangers, toils, and snares through which we have to go, and we must meet these in the right way if we want to endure to the end? What is the right way to meet the dangers, the challenges of the path of life? What's the right way to run? Well, Hebrews 12 tells us that we must run unhindered if we hope to endure we must run unhindered. There are two common types of hindrances that the writer mentions for us and he tells us that we need to lay them aside and get them out of our way. First of all, every encumbrance. And second of all, the sin which entangles so easily. We're to lay aside every encumbrance, he says. Swimmers, when they, before they get into the pool for their race, shave all the hair off their bodies so to remove all... Every little last bit of drag, anything that would slow them down, they get rid of it, including all the little hairs on their body. Runners put on the least restrictive possible clothing so that their bodies are free to move at maximum as needed. I wouldn't know much about running myself. (laughs) Race horses have hoods and blinders put on them so that they won't be distracted on it by anything on the right or the left, but only focus on what lies ahead. And we are to approach the Christian life in this same way. We're to lay aside every encumbrance in order to run with endurance. So what are the things that encumber us as Christians in our running? Well, they're the same things that Jesus warned about in the parable of the sower. You remember the parable of the sower? Jesus talks about several types of soil that are a danger To the Christian, that we should watch out for in ourselves and in others. And one of those types was a type that the seed falls on it and immediately things spring up and choke it out and it's not able to grow. Well, just as, what does he say those things are? He goes on to tell his disciples that they're the, the worry of the world, the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of wealth. These are things that, just like they choke, out and hinder our growth as plants in God's garden, they will weigh us down, bog us down, and hinder us in our running of God's race. Unless we are making it a habit to daily cut ourselves loose from them and, and be unhindered, unencumbered by them. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth are the principal ways in which we prefer ourselves over God and try to save our life rather than willingly lose it for his sake. It's through wealth and cares of this world that we work to establish security and peace and prosperity and comfort and ease here and now at the expense of heaven often. And these pursuits of ours easily, easily, quickly become encumbrances to us, hindrances to us in our pursuit of heaven. Now, what does it mean that we are to lay these encumbrances aside, the deceitfulness of wealth and the worry of the world? Well, There is a necessary preoccupation or a necessary amount of time and focus and energy that we have to give to the cares of this world and the pursuit of wealth. It's just the the world in which we live is a fact of life. God is not, generally speaking, calling us to totally renounce the things of this world. That wouldn't honor him. He's not calling us to be ascetics and live like hermits in the desert. What is he calling us to do? How do we unhinder ourselves and lay these things aside from us? Well, we must learn like the Apostle Paul had learned, how to be content in every circumstance, how to go with plenty and how to be content with little, how to have luxury and how to have want. He says that this is a secret and he's learned this secret by not putting his trust in these things, by following his own advice, I think is to the Corinthians, where he says that we should learn how to use the things of this world as those who don't use them. We should have and practice in our lives a kind of indifference to the luxuries and the pleasures of this world. We should use them as they come to us from God and be thankful. They are gifts from God, but they're temporary. They're fleeting. And quickly, quickly, they become hindrances and snares to us. We're to lay these things aside by learning to be healthily indifferent. Well, we're also told that we need to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. It's in the nature of sin to entangle. It's, Paul calls it the bondage of sin, In Romans, sin's like this creeping vine that grows up constantly and has to be constantly fought down and beat back. This is what the Bible, this beating back and fighting back against the entangling sin, is what the Bible calls mortification of sin, putting sin to death. And this fight is a life and death struggle, as Paul tells us in Romans 8. He says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's a life and death struggle. John Owen has famously put it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Those are your options. you either be fighting back the entangling vines of, of sin in your life or it will strangle you to death. Trip you up, be a snare to you. In Hebrews 12, we're told to lay sin aside so that we can run with endurance. If we get entangled in sin, we can't run. If we can't run, we can't win. And if we can't win, we're damned. And so it's a very serious matter. Are you entangled in sin? Lay it aside is the command. Do what's necessary to lay it aside. And generally the best practice is to confess it, to bring it into the light and let God bless you with disentanglement and freedom in his son. These two things, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, on the one hand, and unmortified sin, on the other hand, is what will hinder our progress to heaven. And so it all must be put away, laid aside. But it's not enough simply, I think, to lay aside these things so as to be free is to run as hard as we can. That's a necessary step. It's part of the equation, but it's not in and of itself sufficient. The Holy Spirit goes on to say that we must also fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. We're to look to Jesus. Jesus is commended to us first by his name and then by his, a special office that he holds. The name of Jesus calls him to mind as the incarnate son of God who took on flesh and received that name in being born of a virgin, laid in a manger, his parents named him Jesus. It also brings to mind the whole purpose of his coming, that he came to suffer and to save. His name encourages us to look to him for encouragement and help because it reminds us that he's in this together. He came down. He took on flesh. He suffered and he died in our place. We're to look unto Jesus. And he's also recommended here under another name, the author and perfecter of faith. He is the originator of faith. We have it as a gift from him. He purchased faith for us at the price of his own blood. He increases that faith in us daily as we seek him. And we grow in it by his power. And he brings it to completion in the end. Just as he, Paul wrote to the Philippians, I am confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Our faith from first to last is in Jesus Christ. He's the author and the perfecter of it. Other translations have this as uh, Jesus is the pioneer of our faith, as if he was the one that went ahead and blazed the trail and took on himself the lion's share of the work and made it possible for us to follow after him because he had blazed that trail. And that's fine as long as we remember that he didn't just set us an example, but he actually is in us by his spirit, working and willing to do by his good pleasure. He is the author, the perfecter, the pioneer of our faith. Now, this is who we are to fix our eyes on. This is the goal. We're to look to Jesus and find in him strength and power to sustain us to endurance. And this brings us, though, around to the question how did Jesus endure? What did he look to? Jesus, it says in verse two, he he set before him joy. It, It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus endure? How did he go to the cross? How did he overcome his own fear and his own dread of the agony that lay ahead? How did he do it? He looked to the joy that had been set before him. What was the joy that had been set before the Lord that caused him to endure? The joy set before the Lord is all that his father had promised him back before the world was made. This is what theologians refer to as the covenant of redemption. A conversation between the members of the Trinity where the heavenly father says to the son, I have an idea. I'll make a world. We'll make a world together. And men will fall. Made in our image. They will corrupt themselves. They will fall. And they will need to be redeemed. And my son, if you will humble yourself and take on yourself the form of a servant and become made in the image of a man and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, then I will do something for you. I will highly exalt you to the highest place. I will bestow on you a name that is above every name, so that at, the name, at your name, Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. In, in this we have a, a good summary <laughs> of everything that was promised to Jesus and the joy that he set before him. All kinds of things could be drawn out of these verses that were joys that he could hold out before himself, that he delighted in, that he could hope in, he could count on, that were promises of God that he could set before his eyes as he faced the most difficult trials of his life. The salvation of fallen men. Was a joy to the Lord. He doesn't delight in the death of a sinner, but rather that they be converted and live. The ability to participate in the Father's work of bringing many sons to glory is a joy that our Lord held out before Himself. The promise of a bride for Himself, a church that was without spot or wrinkle. That his blood could cleanse and could be thereby prepared for him. That there could be many saints gathered around the throne that are praising his name and, and bowing their knees before him. That all his enemies could be made a footstool for his feet. That though he descended to the lowest parts, God would raise him up again to the highest place and give him a name above every name These are joys that Jesus set before him. And it's by this thinking about the joys of the future that awaited him in God's kingdom that Jesus endured. Future joys like these are powerful motivations to endure our present trials and our sufferings. They are able to conquer them and help us to overcome them and to not let them reign in us and hinder us and keep us from persevering. Now, brothers and sisters, we, of course, are, follow, are, are called to follow in the footsteps of our Savior, to go after him, to follow in his train. We're commanded to do many difficult and unsavory things according to our flesh in the Christian life. The Christian life is very very hard. It's very difficult. If we're engaged in it, it is. We have to struggle against our own sins. We have to struggle against the devil. We have to struggle against the world. We have to have hard conversations. We have to work through difficulties in our homes. We have to suffer under the effects of not the effects, let me put it this way. We, we, it's a joy and a privilege, but we have the burden of bearing one another's burdens. And there are incredible burdens among the people of God to be carried. And on and on, the Christian life is full of difficulties and sufferings and pains. You have to give up much. You have to be ready to forsake houses and lands and mother and father and brother and sister for the Lord's sake. And many times it comes down to just that. We have to be willing to be persecuted and hated, despised. There are many things in the Christian life that are difficult and according to our flesh, unsavory. And it is only the hope of everlasting joy by which we can keep pressing on. Now, I think we all know this. It's all true, and we're all able to say, yes, that's true, I agree. <laughs> but I don't think we're very good as a church. I know I'm not very good as, a, as your pastor at laying hold of the joys that God has promised and letting those be our motiva- my motivation. Your, I don't see that often around me being our motivation as a church. I don't know what to say our motivations are all the time. As I've tried to think about it in my own heart, I'm not quite sure. And I'm not talking about feeling joyful all the time. That's not the standard. <laughs> the standard is setting promise promises of joy before us so that we will endure them, that endure the trials. Do you have a habit of when the struggles come into your life on a daily basis against your sin, the sin of others, the work of the church, the work of raising, raising up a godly seed, there's all kinds of trials right there, when those challenges, those discouragements come into your life, do you as a habit set the joys that await you before your eyes? Do you turn to the promises of God's word? Is that your reflex? Is that where you go? It is not where I go very often and for shame and much to, I think, Well, I don't know how to say it. I make life more difficult for myself by not looking to the promises of God. I think many of us make life more difficult than it has to be because we do not look to the joys and contemplate them, think about them, grab hold of them by faith. This is the work daily of running the race with endurance. That we place before our eyes the joys that await us. What are the joys that are, that are promised us? Well, the same joys of our Lord to begin with. In the, this, the long passages in John where Jesus is praying with and talking to his disciples for really for the last time and at length, he talks about joy a lot. Six times in those several chapters he brings up joy. Let me just read them to you, they're really something. In chapter 15 of John, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus had those joys set before him that God had promised him and he wanted to impart those same joys, his joy, to his disciples who were to follow in his train. That's what caused him to persevere. The joy of saving you, the joy of being exalted to the highest place, of being seated in the heavenly places. He could undergo many difficult trials, infinitely more difficult than you face because of that joy. And he, and he offers to you, and to, as he offered to his disciples, the very same joys in him self. Chapter 16, verse 20, he says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will grieve, but your, joy will, your, your grief will be turned into joy. John 16, the next verse, he says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. I hear him talking to himself, even as he talks to his disciples. John, in the next verse, he says, Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. 16.24, Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. John 17, 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. The same joys that caused our Lord to endure the sufferings of the cross are what he offers to you and me and would have us have made full in ourselves. You know, I've been reading the history of the First World War a little bit. And one of the things that's apparent to me is that morale is a very important attribute in, a, in an army. There are battles that were lost by superior forces because of poor morale. Happy soldiers... Singing soldiers are the ones you want to watch out for. The ones who go to battle joyfully and lustily, who relish it, are the ones that are the most dangerous. And so it is with us. If we're lost in ourselves, lost in our discouragements, forgetting what lies ahead, we're sunk. The gates of hell will prevail against us. But if we seek the Lord's joy, if we grab hold of it, if we allow him to impart it to us, and if we do the work that's necessary of setting it before our faces, we will go to battle merrily, cheerfully. Just as the, the men and women in Hebrews are commended for being, are cheerfully submitting to the the seizure of their property. We'll be able to face the loss of all things without losing heart. Just another day of serving the Lord. Just happy to be here. Let's sing a song. The psalmist says that there's this wonderful verse that the Psalms mention, and that is, Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. That relates to joy in a couple of ways. Seek the Lord in his strength. The strength, the principal strength that we need from the Lord is his joy. He says that is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so when we seek him, when we seek his strength... We should think that we're principally seeking his joy. That's what will make us strong. We need his joy in ourselves to be strong. And then secondly, the second half of the verse says that we are to seek his face continually. Now that brings to mind Psalm 16 for me, which is a psalm about, prophetically speaking, Um, about the the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord. It's clear because the Apostle Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost uses it at length to open up and to proclaim the resurrection. Do you remember what it says in Psalm 16, the fullness of joy song? Let me just read the end of it for you. I've set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely for you will not abandon my soul to shale, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. We seek the Lord in his strength. We seek his joy. We seek his face continually, and we find joy inexpressible there, fullness of joy. And we will be able to overcome. We'll be able to face the temporary, momentary light afflictions of our life which we, in our selfishness, in our, in our forgetfulness, make much of. And God reorients us with his word and says they're momentary and light. Think of the pleasures and the joys that await you. Amen? Let's pray.